Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's an exciting time in the life of the Mount Juliet congregation. Uh, tomorrow, for many of our kids, is back to school, and for other kids, it'll be over the next couple of weeks. And as we have done throughout many years, we want to remember uh, in prayer tonight our children. We want to remember their schools. We want to remember all those that are working with them. We want to ask God's blessing upon their lives that they truly, this year, would be a blessing for them in every way and especially spiritually. Uh, We want to pray for those of you that are principals and teachers and coaches. And one of the things that we would like to do is pray for your school by name. And so if you're employed or enrolled at a school this coming fall, Uh, We would ask you to write that, the name of that school, on your card. And uh, when we gather those up today from both services, tonight we'll compile a list. And uh, we'll have about at least three prayers tonight. And one of those prayers will be on behalf of all of those schools. We'll look forward to, at the end of the service tonight, all of the students coming to the front. And our uh, last prayer will be by one of our elders. And uh, one of our shepherds will be praying Uh, on behalf and for all of our children this year. Uh, Children are a wonderful, wonderful gift that God gives us. And uh, we want to value that gift. We want to protect that gift. We want to lead that gift toward God. And there's no greater thing that we can do than to depend upon God in order to do that. And tonight, that's what we want to do, is is depend upon God uh, for a great year. Also, our teachers of children's and even our youth classes. You'll see a little survey in Bible class this morning. If, if you have time to allow the students to complete that and then return those uh, to the Welcome Center after class, that'll be a help also for the introduction of tonight's lesson. You know, there have been a lot of great works taking place, various mission trips. Recently, uh, we had a, a team return from Kresnermisk, Ukraine, and there. Uh, A young lady was studied with, and she uh, understood. I I know, uh, I talked with David Burke afterwards. He said she understood the truth. That young lady is going to be baptized into Christ. And we just received uh, the word yesterday that Anya was baptized into Christ yesterday afternoon. And uh, we are thankful uh, for her decision. Uh, Some of you will know Sasha, that is the preacher there, and uh, she was baptized in their bathtub there uh, at their apartment. And we are so thankful for this congregation. You remember, we've been asking you to pray for this congregation, uh, for their spiritual wellness and growth, but especially at this moment also, particularly pray uh, for this new soul in Christ, and then also be praying for the new location that is trying to be acquired uh, so that they can have room to meet as well as have a better location to meet. And we're thankful that the church has outgrown uh, its present facility, and we look forward to seeing uh, what God will provide there in a great and wonderful place uh, to meet. And we want to do all that we can do uh, to be a help and a support in that. The text that was just read gave husbands probably one of the greatest challenges that we read in all of the Bible whenever he says to dwell with your wives according to knowledge or according to understanding. 
Isn't it interesting how hard it is sometimes to understand each other? Communication sometimes is very difficult. And it seems that sometimes the most difficult communication is between husbands and wives. I like the little article here that a wife wrote to husbands. And she was going to try to help husbands understand what particular words meant whenever your wife says these words. For example, the word fine. This is a word we, speaking of wives, we use at the end of any argument that we feel we are right about, and we want you to be quiet now. By the way, never use this word fine to describe another woman, because that will cause one of those arguments that will end in the word fine. Five minutes. This is half an hour. It's equivalent to the five minutes that your football game is going to last before you take out the trash. So we feel that's an even trade. Nothing. If you ask her what is wrong and she says nothing, this means something. And you should be on your toes. Nothing is usually used to describe the feeling a woman has of wanting to turn you inside out, upside down, and backwards. Nothing usually signifies an argument will la- that will last five minutes and will end with the word fine. Go ahead with raised eyebrows. This is a dare. One that will result in a woman getting upset over nothing and it will end with the word fine. Go ahead with normal eyebrows. This means I give up. Or do what you want because I don't care. You will get a raised eyebrow with go ahead in just a few more minutes. And it will be followed by nothing and then fine. And she'll talk to you in about five minutes when she cools off. It's interesting to think about in marriage. The genders as God created by no mistake are so different. Our personalities are usually very different. And our backgrounds from which we come, one being able to say, well, my family always did it this way, and the other being able to say, well, my family never did it this way. And so all of a sudden, we're bringing different backgrounds, different personalities, and different genders together to live together, but for what? How do you define a successful marriage? Last week and this week, Our goal is to see some of the details that God would give us of how wives and husbands ought to live with each other. But the overall blanket that covers all of these two lessons is we need to set a righteous definition of success. For example, if you knew nothing about the game of basketball and nothing about the game of golf, you might not know who was winning based on the score. Unless you knew that the lowest score wins in golf and the highest score wins in basketball. It's important for us to be able to define success so that we know what we're trying to accomplish. Every journey has a destination. Unless we know what is at the end of the the destination to be able to say, this is our definition of success, we cannot be on the correct journey. We mentioned last week how too often in America we define strong marriages. We talk about things like this. Well, you know, when, 
when we got married, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. And now look at the house we live in. Look what we drive. Look at our lake house. Look at the vacations we go on. We must have a great marriage. If your definition of success is what can we accumulate in life, then you could say you have a successful marriage as long as you have many material things. Probably the most frequent error that people make today in their marriages is defining the success of their marriage based upon their children. Well, well, look at the earned degrees our children have. Look at the positions that they hold. Look at the, the awards or the recognitions that they have had. Is that how God defines success in a marriage based on whether or not the children succeed? And then others simply go for survival. Well, we must have a, a, a great marriage because after all, we've not divorced and, and that's the way we describe success in marriage. Let's just not divorce. Now friends, there's not anything wrong in proper perspective with any of those three. But if that is the totality of our definition of a successful marriage, we've missed the most important aspect and what should be a characteristic of marriage. That is, what if our marriage, we truly saw it as each in the marriage, each has a responsibility to say, I not only want to grow closer to God, but I want to do everything that I can do to help my spouse grow closer to God. I want to be on the road to heaven and I want to do everything I can do to help my spouse stay on and be on and live and die on that road to heaven. That would be the greatest measure of success that we could ever enjoy. Many of us who are married, and especially this morning husbands, we know what it is for our wife to ask for help. We understand when she, she gets in, into some kind of dilemma and oftentimes for many of us it might be that there's something mechanical and, and it's that, hey, can you help? Something is broken or, or right now I'm feeling overwhelmed or whatever it may be. I want all of us men this morning to imagine, to imagine our wife saying, help, will you help me get to heaven? What greater request could a wife ever make and what greater fulfillment could a husband ever offer to his wife than to say, I will give everything that I am to help you get to heaven. In the text that we just read, we don't have time to break down carefully what I would like for you to notice in just a moment's time. But it's really neat the way Peter, keep in mind he's writing towards the end of the first century and towards the end of the biblical writings that we have in the New Testament. And he's writing to Christians who are beginning to suffer harsh persecution. And so Peter is literally writing, urging them to hang in there and not give up in the midst of a lot of adversity. But then as we come to the middle of the second chapter and into the third chapter... He gives us something that there is a common thread that runs through at first glance. At first glance you would say, oh, these are very, very different relationships. And they are. But the common thread that he runs through these is he says, I want to write to the Christian 
who is living around unbelievers. And so if you have your Bible open, we're not going to read each of these, but if you want to just glance, look in 1 Peter, the second chapter. And look in verse 12. He, he is writing in verse 12 to Christians who are around Gentiles, but we would probably better understand this to say heathens. And, and he's, he's writing to those who are surrounded by heathens, and he's urging them to be faithful. And he says at the end of this, by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, I want you to notice this because this is a common thread running throughout these paragraphs. Okay, Peter, I'm living around a lot of wicked people. Some of them want to bring pain in my life. Some of them want to persecute me. What what should I do, Peter? And he says, I want you to continue living a faithful life around unbelievers and they're going to observe, they're going to see your good works and some of them will change their life because of your good works. And they're going to glorify the Father which is in heaven. That sounds like Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is the thread that runs. The very next verse, he talks about us submitting to whether it's government or anybody in authority. Even if government or authority is not Christian, we as Christians would still do what's right. We go to the second chapter in verse 18. And this is where he tells servants to be submissive to their masters, even if the master is not a righteous individual. Why? Because he might have a righteous effect on that unrighteous master. And then that brings us to where we were last week. In the third chapter in verse 1, he writes to wives in verse 1 and 2, wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. And remember, it was their chaste conduct. It was their submissiveness. And there was their absence of nagging that he says, those are the things that you might do to win that husband to Christ. And so now we come to 1 Peter, the third chapter in verse 7. And if you have your Bible open, I'd like for you to notice again how this begins. Now, with all of that being said, notice the second word here as he says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them. Whoa, whoa. Why did he say likewise? Because he's pulling that common thread right into here also. So now he's saying husbands, and now I'm talking to believing husbands. The previous paragraph, he was talking to believing wives who had an unbelieving husband. But now he's, he's swapping that around and he says, now in a like way, I want to talk now to the believing husbands who may be married to an unbelieving wife. Likewise, what does he say to them? Now we're going to come back and see these two things that he says. He says, I want you to dwell with them and I want you to honor them. But I want you to notice, you remember a while ago we talked about we have to define success. And there is a journey that ends at the destination of success. I'd like for you to look at that third line there where he says, as being heirs together of the grace of life. So he's saying, husbands, I want you to dwell with them. I want you to honor them. Why? As being heirs together of the grace of life. I hesitate to say this to you this morning because I'm not a scholar. And I really get nervous when I disagree with scholars. But after my study, I've got to disagree with what most scholars say on this text at this particular place in the text. One scholar that I love to read, he says that this line 
is talking about the heirs of life, the grace of life. He says that this is the gift that God gives husbands and wives, the gift of children. I don't see how that fits in this context. Is Peter saying here that a man who dwells with his wife, according to understanding, and he honors his wife as the weaker vessel, that man is going to get to receive the gift of children. But if he doesn't honor or he doesn't dwell, he's not going to get the gift of children? I don't see how it fits in the context. It it just doesn't, it just, to me, it doesn't fit. Another scholar that I love to read, he says that he believes that this heirs of life, he says that he believes that this is the gift of marriage. That, That this man and this woman will enjoy the gift of marriage. Well, maybe if you were to take that a little more detailed and say they'll, they'll enjoy marriage as God designed it, but even at that is a little bit of a struggle because he's writing to a believing husband and an unbelieving wife, and that's not exactly the way God would want marriage to be. And again, if a man doesn't honor his wife, isn't he still married to her? And if he doesn't dwell with her according to understanding, isn't he still married to her? Every time this Greek word of heirs here is used in the scriptures, every other time it's used, it's always describing the inheritance of heaven together. We, according to Romans 8, can be joint heirs with Christ. And and Ephesians, the Gentiles were told that they could be joint heirs with Jews and everyone else through Jesus Christ. Isaac and Abraham, and according to Hebrews 11, they were promised that they could be joint heirs of the promise that came through Christ. When you look at that common thread that's pulled through, what was that thread through each of the paragraphs we've just read? I want you to be a good example to the heathens because some of them might share in heaven with you. I want you to be a good example to your masters because if you do, some of them might share in heaven with you. I want you wives to be a good example to your husbands that are unbelievers because some of them might share in heaven with you. It just makes sense that now when we come to the third chapter in verse 7 and he's talking to believing husbands and unbelieving wives that it would be that same teaching. He would say, live this life, husbands that are believers, so that you and your wife could possibly... Share as joint heirs together in heaven. It's not painting a picture that husbands and wives are going to stand together and they're going to give an account together on the day of judgment. But it is the idea that we ought to live with a destination in mind. I want to spend eternity with God. And I want my spouse to spend eternity with God. So what is it that a husband could do if his goal was either to enlighten an an unbelieving wife or if it was to encourage a believing wife? What is it that God would say that that man could and should do to help their family arrive in heaven together? 
I don't know if you and I were writing this, what all we would come up with, but I'm always amazed at how simple but yet powerful and profound God's teachings are. And so he's able to take in one sentence here and challenge us men with such a challenge that if we're married 50, 60, 70 years, it'll still be something that we have to work on all the time. There's not a man here that can say, I've conquered that. I don't ever have to work on it anymore. But what does he say? The first thing that he says is he talks about dwelling with them according to the old King James is probably the, the, the closest translation to the original here. The King James says to dwell with them according to knowledge. Now, of course, if we know someone, we then say, I understand them. And so he says, I want you to dwell with them according to understanding. Now, I would like for you to think about this word dwell for a minute. How many times have you ever said this or you've heard someone say about someone, like one guy will say about another, he'll say, we're closest brothers. What's he implying there? He's implying that generally when people live in the same house, they're very, very close. And so he's saying, now I feel as close to that person as if I dwelt with them. What is the Lord challenging us men here? The Lord is challenging us men. I want you to have a mindset that says, I dwell with my spouse. Now you may think, well, that's kind of strange. It's not strange because there's way too many men that have a problem living at home. They get off work and they look for somewhere else to go. They have time to spend at home, but they look for somewhere else to go to spend time. God is giving a direct command that says, if you want to help your spouse get to heaven, go home and live there. Dwelling literally in the original language points to the idea of intimacy. Where you dwell, those are the people that you grow close to. Those are the people that your life is intertwined with. And he says, now I want you to go and I want you to live at home with a purpose. Now how important is a purpose? Let's make an illustration from Scripture. In Hebrews the 10th chapter, in verse 25, he tells us not to forsake the assembly. But if you back up at the beginning, one verse back, at the beginning of that thought of not forsaking the assembly, you see that the reason we're not to forsake the assembly is because we care about each other. You see, he gives us the opportunity, he says, to stir and provoke one another to love and to good works. And because of that, we do not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. That means there are probably some here this morning that you have come with the purpose of realizing that you have a responsibility from God to stir, that's, that provoke. A lot of times we use those in negative sense. In, in Hebrews 10, 24, he uses those in a very positive sense. We're supposed to stir and provoke one another to love and to good works. And we're supposed to do it when we're assembled together. There would have been some of you that before service started this morning, you walked over to someone and you greeted them and you talked to them because you believe, you are convicted that that is your purpose for being in this assembly. As well as worshiping God is to stir and provoke one another good works. There, there will be those same people when the amen is said, they will look for guests. They'll look for that brother or sister that they've been praying for. They'll look for someone that they haven't talked to a while. And there will be a lot of encouraging and good things that will come about. Now, there might be, I hope there's not, but there might be somebody else here in this very assembly that you're not here for that purpose. 
You're here to just check off the fact like an attendance roll. I went to worship today. God's got to be satisfied with that. All of you people get out of my way. The amen has been said and y'all are just obstacles. I like to get the very closest parking spot to the road. I like to get the seat that's the closest to the parking spot. And when the amen is said, please people, just get out of my way. Now, I know that's extreme what I just said. But now, do you see... There is a major difference in someone attending this service with one purpose or the other purpose. The experience, the interaction, the intimacy would be totally different for those two people. Husbands, what is our purpose for going home after work? What is our purpose on our day off? What is our purpose when we occasionally send a text or a phone call? What is our purpose? God says our purpose is to be to know them, to understand them. And I think all of us here would agree that because of the differences as already mentioned in genders and personalities and backgrounds, this is a huge challenge. Last week, I urged you to not believe what the world says when they make submission a negative thing and God makes it a very beautiful thing. I'm begging you this week, let's not believe what the world says when the world says, oh, well, a husband and wife could never understand each other. We're, we're just so different and that's the way it's going to be and, and you'll never understand. How many older guys, how many of us have been guilty of looking to somebody that's about to get married or just been married and maybe they say something like, I just don't understand her and we laugh and we say, you'll never understand her. Do we believe the lies of Satan? John 8 and 44. Or do we believe the truth of Jesus Christ? John 14 and 6. God would not command us to do something that we could not do. He may command us to do something that we refuse to do, but God will not command the impossible. If I do not know the struggles, the challenges, if I do not know my wife, I need to go home. I need to live there. And I need to live there with a purpose. A purpose that every day I want to get to know her better. How am I going to reach my definition of success for us to spend eternity together? And God has given me the responsibility of being head of the family. That doesn't mean the man gets his way. That means the man is responsible for making decisions to get the family to heaven. That's all that means. And so if I am responsible to get my family to heaven, how can I get people to heaven that I don't even know? If I don't know what their greatest challenge is, if I don't know what their spiritual struggle is, if I don't know what kind of emotional uh, turmoil that they're going through right now, if I don't know what kind of social dilemma that they're in right now, how can I, as the leader of my home, how can I help anybody get to heaven unless I go home and live there according to understanding? I want to challenge us men to give a sober evaluation of our life this week. And I want to challenge us to pray about it every day this week. I want to challenge us to meditate. 
And really ask ourselves, are we doing everything we can do to get to know our spouse? And if we're bold and humble enough, maybe we want to ask our spouse. And maybe we want to turn over another leaf, a more godly leaf, a leaf that will truly help both of us get to heaven. But notice that second thing. God speaks about a man having a desire to be heirs of, of the grace of life. And he says, I want you to dwell with her according to knowledge. But then he also says, I want you to honor her as the weaker vessel. The word honor does mean to esteem. But also, just for clarity's sake, I want to remind you that the root of this word actually goes back to price, to value. The idea is we value things that we place a great... uh, Let me rephrase that. We honor things or people that we place a great value upon. Like, I could give you a little $5 ring, or or somebody could give you a $50,000 ring. Now, which one are you going to value the most? Your conduct and your protection of it, you're going to guard, you're going to honor, if you will, that $50,000 ring a lot more than you value a $5 ring. And so here he gives a challenge. He says, okay, you're the leader of the home. And I've placed one that is a weaker vessel in the home. Are you going to lead them based on physical brute strength and intimidation? Are you going to lead them through honoring and esteeming them and seeing their worth? It's so sad to read the statistics of domestic violence. Supposedly about three women every day in America die at the hands of their husband or boyfriend. The very one that God places on this earth to protect and to provide and to be the stronger is using what God gave him that should be positive in a very ungodly and dangerous way. God never intended for the members of a household to be afraid of the one who is the strongest. That goes against our human nature. From from little boys, we know the unspoken rules on the playground when we're in fourth and fifth grade. We know who the strongest one is. And even as teenage boys, we understand that idea that the strongest one, the meanest one, gets his way about a lot of things. But you have to recognize and admit that's our fleshly nature. Are we going to lead our house down a fleshly path or are we going to lead our house down a spiritual path? When he speaks about the wife being the weaker vessel, we know he's not talking about spiritually. I would say any of us that have ever been a part of any congregations, we all know and recognize the fact that you could take the role of faithful Christian men and then in that same congregation we could take the role of faithful Christian women and it would be a lot longer than the men. Why? It seems that women do a better job of being spiritual than men do. 
It's not that, that men are stronger spiritually. It's that men are stronger physically. The strongest person in the world will always be a man. The average man will always be stronger than the average woman. What are we supposed to do with this? It's like in Song of Solomon in the second chapter when she speaks of of her love for Solomon. She speaks of being able to seek shade under the apple tree. And you see the apple tree there is a representation of him. And what is that? He provides fruit. It's apple. He provides fruit to nourish her. And he provides protection under the sun that back in the first chapter has scorched her skin. Friends, we're going from old covenant, new covenant, as long as time goes. Man will be stronger. And God expects man to honor his wife, to esteem her and to lead her based on that honor, not based upon the physical strength. I don't know if this will resonate with you, but the only way that I can think to illustrate this is husbands, we need to ask ourselves, and and I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, I'm just trying to give you an illustration. We need to ask ourselves, and wives, don't take this the wrong way. Deal, don't take this the wrong way. Husbands, How would you talk to your wife and how would you act around your wife if she were twice your strength? If she outweighed you by 150 pounds? And if she could just in one backhand put you against the wall, would you talk to her a little bit different? Would your attitude be a little bit different? Would you choose different words and different tones? Would you choose to... Not push or not hit. A Christian man cannot use his size or strength or intimidation or force to lead his wife or his family. God's men lead through honor. A wife may choose to not follow. That's literally the context of what's being written here. Here's a man that's going home according to 1 Peter 3 and 7 and he's dwelling with his wife understanding. He's going to honor her as the weaker vessel. But he has a dream. He has a goal. He has something he's working toward. He wants to share in life together. But you know what? Apparently she's not living that way right now. And so you know what God says? You still honor her. Do not push her around. I'll say it this bluntly and simply and we'll move on. There is never a place in God's family, I'm talking about the physical family, for a man to push, to shove, to hit, to threaten, to intimidate with attitude or voice. There is not a place for that in God's family. Why? Because we have a destination that is heaven. And God's not going to hear our prayers. See that last line? That your prayers may not be hindered. I cannot, by my choice, by my actions, be wrong in my relationship with my wife and be right in my relationship with God. God says, you mistreat your wife, 
I won't even hear your prayers. And what should this man be praying for? What all of us should be praying for, but especially in this setting, he's a believer married to an unbeliever. You can imagine his prayer every night was, Lord, I want my wife to become a Christian. And Peter is is speaking for God here, and he says, I tell you what, if you want your wife to become a Christian, you dwell with her according to knowledge. You honor her as a weaker vessel. And if you can't do that, I won't even hear your prayer. Serious business. Serious business. My relationship needs to be right with my wife so I can be right with God. So what I learned today, I learned that my relationship with God includes my relationship with my wife. I really can't separate those two. I learned that I need to ask myself and maybe even my wife how well I know her. I've learned that my words and actions place a value on my wife. What have I said she is worth? I've learned that knowing her and placing a value upon her equals love. What's the destination? Heaven. First, that must be my destination. And then second, I need to do everything I can do to take as many as I can with me. And I need to begin in my own home. This morning, are you on that path The world's full of people that aren't, but you don't have to be one of them. If you're ready to become a Christian this morning, thank God that He forgives us and that He gives us an opportunity to be forgiven and saved only by His grace. If you're a believer willing to repent of sins and you want to be immersed in Christ this morning, we would love to assist you with that. Maybe you've become a Christian and you lost the way and you can honestly say, I'm not not on that path. Why not come back to that path this morning? Repent. Let's pray forgiveness. Let's make our lives right with God for our soul's sake and for our family's influence's sake. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.